now listening to Grace City Portland. Okay, without any further ado, guys, we're going to jump into part seven of our teaching series that we've been into this summer called The Classics. Um, don't you just love the classics? There's just like a sweet nostalgia about the old stories. Um, and there's a reason why we're doing this beyond just like, oh, we like nostalgia. No, the, the stories of the Old Testament, many of the stories that we all heard of or at the very least are aware of because we grew up in America, like Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, David and Goliath, et cetera, et cetera. These stories, although they often get told in sort of like Sunday school settings or, or Hollywood movies, if we grapple with them for all that they're worth, they are rich, profoundly packed full of theological significance, profound truth about the very nature of God, who God is, what he's like, how he's acted throughout creation and history, and what that means for us as his children, as the family of God today in Portland. So that's why we're doing it. And I'm really excited about this morning because it's, it's part seven and it's, it's quite different. So far we've been looking at the stories of, of individuals, people. This morning we're going to look at the story of an object, how many of you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant? How many of you guys remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> yes, yes. That's the one. That's, and that's the song. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we're going to look at today. There it is, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it's, it's, it's a rather bizarre story. We can call it a story. It's, it's a series of events. It's this thing that God commanded to be built for a very specific reason. And it's, it's quite mysterious. It's quite deep. We're going to jump into it. We're going to look at it in, in quite some detail so that we can grapple with this thing and figure out what was God thinking when he commanded the construction of a golden box. But before we get right into it, we're going to back up. I want us to, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. So I'm, I'm going to go for like under three minutes. But I want to look at the, like the 40 plus days between the moment God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, cr across the Red Sea, which we looked at last week, and then a bit of a wander through the wilderness until they finally came to the base of Mount Sinai, which is where we will catch up with God and this Ark of the Covenant. Um, but I want to I catch us up to speed. So if we start where we left off last week, that would be Exodus 15. They crossed the Red Sea. You remember what, what they did as soon as they got to the other side? They all sang a song, a worship song together. It's super biblical. They sang this song about, about God's faithfulness and his ability to set them free and how he, he parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. And then towards the end of Exodus 15... Aaron's sister, Miriam, grabs a tambourine and leads all the women in a tambourine dancing session. And so we should totally start doing that. Okay, we'll see. Just putting it out there. After that, they get three days into the desert and they realize they forgot to pack water. So the people complain. 
the people complain and God provides water at Marah. This is the story of the bitter water that the people say, oh, we've got water, but it's bitter. We're going to get sick and die if we try to drink it. So God commands Moses to throw this like branch in there and it purifies the water and it becomes sweet. And God provides. Exodus 16, about a month later, they run out of food. The people complain again. God provides manna, which literally means, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They couldn't figure out what it was. Somehow they figured out that it was edible. Apparently it was, it was a bit of a sweet, flaky substance that sort of formed across the ground like dew in the morning, and they were able to scrape it up and eat it. Um, and they did eat it for like 40 years. Uh, eventually that gets old, so they, they complain again that they're, they're over the bread of the manna, and so God provides quail, like a whole lot of bird meat. Exodus 17, they run out of water again. They're in a desert. The people complain again. God provides again. If you're listening very intently, you should start to discern a pattern. Okay, complain, provide, complain, provide. Um, This time Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. Most commentaries uh, agree that this is absolutely an allusion to Christ, Jesus the rock, who when struck for our sins, provided living water for people to live again. Uh, Then God rescues his people, this is also in Exodus 17, from military defeat against um, the Amalekites, or Amalek, so there's some people along the way who just decide, let's get the slaves on the run, and they attack Israel. Now, this is the story you may recall where it says that they're fighting, and Moses is sitting on a hilltop overlooking this battle. I mean, they're, they're like fighting for their life. And it says that God commanded Moses to raise his hands, to intercede in prayer for the people as they were trying to survive this battle. And every time his hands got tired and they started to go down to his side, they began to lose the battle. So he sat down on a rock, and a couple of some companions literally held his hands up in prayer. I believe this is what Paul is thinking of when he writes his first letter to Timothy, this is New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.8, and he says, in every place, lift holy hands in prayer. Interesting, which is one of the reasons why it's really biblical to lift your hands in worship. It's not like a commandment. I'm not, I'm not trying to get weird. Um, but if you ever feel inclined to lift your hands during worship or prayer, there is absolutely a biblical precedent for that. Food for thought. Exodus 18. Moses gets some really good work-life balance advice from his father-in-law, Jeff, Jethro, uh, his former employer as well, and which is really good because he was like right on the verge of burnout. Exodus 19. They finally arrive at the base of Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, where Moses encountered God for the first time in the burning bush that wasn't consumed by the fire. They finally made it back. Remember, God says, go get my people, command Pharaoh to let them go, that they might come and serve me on this very mountain. So they have finally arrived about 40, to like 44 days later, is how long they've been wandering around trying to get their way back to this mountain. Exodus 20 through 24. Moses has now gone up this mountain. God speaks and gives commandments to his people. 
The people, of course, are scared to death. To them, it just sounds like lightning and thunder and darkness, and it's, it's obviously this supernatural event, and they're scared, so they tell Moses to communicate to God for them and relay the message back. So that's what Moses does. He goes up the mountain. Um, God gives him the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Um, he gives him laws concerning altars, laws concerning their treatment of bond servants, uh, laws concerning restitution, laws concerning social justice, uh, Sabbath regulations, certain religious festivals, and God reminds Moses of the promise that he had originally made to Abraham. Remember, way back in the beginning, God met Abraham out in the desert, and he said, I want to use you, you and your family, which at that point was just him and his barren wife. I want to use you to create this family that's going to be bigger than the number of stars you can count in the sky, bigger than the number of grains of sand you can count on the ground. And through your family, I'm going to bless the world. This is that family this nation that's come out of Egypt, this is like 400 plus years later, God is doing it, God is fulfilling his promise. So he reminds Moses of the game plan. Like this is all God's faithfulness happening. Exodus 25, that wasn't too bad. God begins to give Moses specific instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle or the, the tent where God was meant to live, to dwell. And then in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now we're at the Ark of the Covenant. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle and right in the middle of this thing, in this little area called the Holy of Holies, I want you to make an ark. It was just an, a really old biblical word for a container. I want you to make a box and I want you to make it exactly like this. Next slide, please. Exodus 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. It's a bit of a rectangular box. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Which most people uh, would agree refers to the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue, those initial commandments that God gave to Moses when he ascended Mount Sinai. Next slide, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat, or lid, of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. It fits perfectly on it. And you shall make two cherubim 
Those are like angels, heavenly creatures. Two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. Verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. This is super specific. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, the lid, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Um, for you visual people out there, I went to great lengths to construct a replica. This is obviously um, an exact replica of the Ark of the Covenant. It does have contents within it. Oh, yes, that's true. We'll get to that. Second Samuel 6 in just a minute. Um, so, yeah, there you go. It's, okay, it's not exactly proportionate. Um, these are actually made of little stir straws. Um, but that's pretty much it. That is, that is the Ark of the Covenant. Why, after all of that, after all of the provision, the miracles, the deliverance, God calls Moses up to the mountain, and the first thing he wants to talk about, one of the first things, is the box. He says, Moses, I want you to build a container, and I want you to build it exactly like this, and there's a few things that I want you to put inside of it. Is it just me, or is that not, like, interesting? Why? Why on earth? Why a box? Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this. I don't know if you, if you even care to think about it, but um, I've been thinking about it a lot. And uh, the Bible features the Ark of the Covenant a lot. I mean, this is like a big deal in the family life of God. From this point on, after the construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, this thing goes with them everywhere. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes, there you find God speaking, moving, helping, providing, defending the power of God, the presence of God, his voice guiding and instructing his people, all to do with this, this ark, this box. I want to highlight four things that I think are, are absolutely relevant and helpful for us to understand about why God would do this. So God asked for a box. Why? Because number one, we need to understand that he reveals himself in exact detail. He is an actual God. Verse 9, in chapter 25, he says, do this exactly as I show you. Exactly as I show you, you shall make it. The writer of Hebrews, this is New Testament, says this, 
Hebrews chapter eight, verse five. When Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. For they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly reality. God and his kingdom, God and the heavenly world, God and his spiritual reality exist apart from my little opinion about him. You ever, ever have a conversation with um, someone about uh, spiritual things, about God, and perhaps they or perhaps you might say something like, well, to me, God, or, well, you know, in my opinion, God, or the God I, and we sort of talk about God and spiritual things as if it was just a matter of like personal perspective or my opinion, which I totally get. Like I understand the rationality, the quote unquote rationality of relativism. Like I understand that people are trying to be polite and humble to not impose one's understanding of God on another. Like I understand that. But if, if you just back up and think for a second, logically or philosophically, that really, it just doesn't hold water. Because if that's the way we think of God, then really we're just playing make-believe and we're talking about the God of one's imagination. Like, well, to me, God is like, well, interesting. So are you talking about the God that you've sort of thought up in your head? The God of your opinion? The God that you like to imagine is real? Or perhaps the God you created in your own image. Now, you're, you're very welcome to do that, but I think the point simply needs to be made that the God we're talking about, the God of Scripture, he has nothing to do with my little opinion about him. There's a reality that exists in another realm, the kingdom of heaven, God himself who sits as king over the universe, is a reality that exists despite my feelings or opinions about it. That's the God who we're talking about. God is more than a figment of one's imagination. And God is not afraid of a little competition. Sometimes I think we get rather insecure about our religious convictions when we want to talk about God or perhaps share our experience or beliefs about God with another, sometimes we can slip into this um, rather anxious way of defending God. Um, God is God. He, he needs not my defense. He doesn't need me to be able to make sense out of him before I can share him with another. God is reality who he reveals himself because he is um, I love the, and this is skipping forward quite a bit, but 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is one of the other books in the Old Testament. Uh, the people, God's people, they're like well into the land that he had promised Abraham. He said, I'm going I'm to make you into a family and I'm going to give you a place to live. Okay, so that obviously involves space, actual, little actual plot of land, tiny little plot of land. 
And so, but in order to get there, you're gonna have to trust me. There's gonna be conflict. There's people, there are evil people actually that, that don't want you there. There's other, other uh, kingdoms that, that are already there, but I want to displace those kingdoms with my kingdom, which is a better kingdom. And so at some point along the way, uh, the Philistines capture the ark. Can you believe it? Like the ark of God. It's like the Nazis digging it up and they, they find you know, the Indiana Jones movie. And they find the ark of God and they capture it. And so like, sweet, we got the ark. Like we, that's it, like we've won. And they think somehow they can, they can strong arm God's people if, some, if they can capture their God. So they take the ark and they put it in the temp, their temple of their God, who's this God called Dagon, like dragon, but Dagon. And it says that the next day when their temple priests went in to check on the ark, that this, this statue of Dagon had fallen over flat on its face. Super weird. So the priest put him back up, erect, come back once again the next morning. He's fallen over again, only this time its hands and its head has broken off. And we're told it's all, all that's left intact is its trunk. So apparently this is some sort of like elephant deity. Because God was present. It's never been this matter of like, oh, who, who is God in your opinion? No, God is God and he's better than your God. He's stronger than your God. He's more gracious than your God. He's more faithful than your God because he is not according to what I'd like him to be or my opinion of him. He just is because God is God. And I think perhaps you think, oh, that's taking some theological liberties there, Simon. All that from the box. But I think we're meant to understand that when God says, make it exactly like this, make it according to the pattern that already exists in heaven so that what you create can be an accurate representation which already exists, we're meant to understand that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, when we talk about God himself, we're not playing make-believe. We're talking about a God in reality that exists regardless of what we think about him. What do you guys think about that? All right. This is actually really good news. This is really good news. Number two, God has collectibles. You guys know what's in the box. There's three items in the box. Now, obviously, we know that the stone tablets were meant to be put in the box. Um, If you read on uh, Numbers, Exodus 16, um, we're told that when the manna appeared, Moses told Aaron, get a jar and collect some of the manna. Keep it in there so that in the generations to come, people will remember how God provided for his family when there was nothing in the desert. And he says, keep it with the testimony, which was to be stored in the ark. In Numbers 16, um, there was a big rebellion that broke out among God's family. It's referred to as Korah's Rebellion. There was a guy who basically got tired of Moses and Aaron calling all the shots. So he gets 250 tribal leaders to band with him. And he says, look, we can, and he decides he's going to run the show. Rebellion breaks out. 
big, big problem. Because God's in charge, which means he gets to decide like, who, how this is going to go down. So anyways, it goes really, really bad for Korah and his friends. Like a plague breaks out, something like 14,000 plus people die. It was just a super bad idea. At the end of that incident, God says, take Aaron's staff along with 12 others, each one which represents one of the tribes of Israel, and then let's see which one sprouts a living branch. And of course, as you can guess, Aaron's staff, the rightful priest, the one who God had ordained, was the only one. It's, it's literally this staff, imagine it, sprouted a leaf, and it actually produced almonds. Super cool. That was also put in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Hebrews 9 actually just lays it right out. Um, it tells us that within the Ark you find some of the bread, the manna put in a jar, the stick that had budded, or the, the staff, and the two tablets, the stones. So I actually have um, the manna, gluten-free, of course. The staff, it's, it's a pretty pathetic staff, but best I could do this morning. And I've got my two little rocks here. So some bread, a stick, and two rocks. That's what God wanted to keep in the box. These are reminders. Two, twofold reminders. One, the bread, of course, was God's provision. Why did God insist that his people lug this box around with his collectibles? He wanted them to remember, just as we remember this morning in communion. He wants his people to remember that he is our provider. He is our provider. And so he gives them the bread. The staff. The staff, it represents God's authority, but it represents something more than that. Remember, the staff of Aaron was the staff that God utilized when he was busy setting them free, God's people free from slavery in Egypt. It was the staff that God kept using to perform these powerful signs to essentially twist Pharaoh's arm so that he would let his people go. It was always the staff. And of course, the tablets themselves. These, are, these aren't simply laws, rules, that God had given his people to live by. They, they are that on a superficial level, but more than that, the laws were more like, it was like when my wife and I got married and we exchanged vows. This is a covenant that God had formed with his children. They exchanged vows, and God says, if you keep your vows, you better believe I'll keep mine. And so the tablets represent God's faithfulness to his people. But as we saw on the outset, remember I said you might notice a pattern if, you're, if your discernment's really on fire this morning. Not only does the manna remind God's people of his provision, it also reminds the people of how they did nothing but complain because they were totally ill-content. The whole 40 years, wandering through the, this desert, God provided, his people complained. God gave them more, they kept complaining. 
His people were not grateful people at all. And of course, the staff, not only is it a symbol of God's power, his ability to deliver his people, it's also a very painful reminder of that one time when they decided to rebel. They decided they didn't want to do it Yahweh's way anymore. They would call the shots, and that had um, deadly repercussions. And then, of course, the tablets themselves. We don't have time this morning, but you might know that God's people failed miserably in keeping their vows to their God. Um, They just couldn't do it. In fact, often throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people, his bride, as like an adulteress. I love the book of Hosea. It's this picture of a man who's meant to represent the heart of God. He takes a prostitute to be his wife, uh, some, some woman named Gomer. And over and over and over again, she leaves him and has an affair. And he keeps taking her back. He keeps taking her back. This is the faithfulness of God. God's collectibles are sweet and painful reminders of what he's like and what we're like as well. Let's go to the next slide. God sits on a throne called mercy. God sits on a throne called, it's the mercy seat. It's what covers the collectibles. What does that mean? God sits on a throne called mercy. In order to cover our sin, God becomes one of us. He sends his son Jesus to become the bread of life on our behalf. Jesus talked about the manna in the desert. And he says, you, you know about, you heard about, you heard stories of the bread that was sent from heaven. I tell you, I am that bread. I am who you are to find your sustenance in. I am your provider. I am your source of contentment. Jesus, he is our good shepherd who leads us, protects us, who laid his life down for us. He's the one who holds the staff, the shepherd's staff, to lead us besides cool water, to protect us. You know why a shepherd has a staff, right? It's not to beat the sheep. It's to club the wolves and the lions. Jesus, he's the one who holds the staff now. The staff that provides new life. That old dead stick sprouted almonds. Jesus, he's the faithful one who didn't rebel, but completely submitted his will to the will of his heavenly father. Thus fulfilling the law on our behalf. Whereas we like the ancients, Israel, as hard as we may try, fail again and again and again. Okay, we, are, we are the whore bride. And the scriptures really are that graphic. 
We are the whore bride of Christ. But even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful always. Jesus was the one who did fulfill those marriage vows. He did live a sinless life. And then in our place, he died a sinner's death on a Roman cross. God sits on a throne called mercy in Jesus Christ. He is our covering. And when you think about every time you've done nothing but complain about the life that God has given you, every time you feel tempted to rebel against God's authority in your life, every every time that thought creeps into your mind that, you know, I, I realize that God is meant to be The Bible is meant to be God's heart for his people. This is his instruction to us. These are his commandments for how we're to live. And you think, yeah, but to me, God is. And you begin to recreate God in your own opinion. That's just, it's the same mistake that we've all been making from day one. Remember Jesus, he is the one who leads us. He is the good shepherd who doesn't dominate over us but lays down his life for us that we might experience true life. He is the faithful one. He is the merciful one who covers our sin. Last point. We are the new ark of God. Let me read this to you in closing. Back to Hebrews. Chapter 8. This is prophecy regarding the ark and the old covenant. Listen to what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and with all of God's people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. They didn't keep their vows. And so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will, pour, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And the least of them to the greatest, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. Amen. Do you guys catch that? Whereas once the law was contained in the box, whereas once God's people were to co- commanded to carry his presence around in this ark, 
God establishes a new covenant because we broke the old one quite thoroughly. And God in his faithfulness says, new covenant, new vows. Instead of a box, I'm going to put my law in your mind and write it onto your heart. I am going to fill you, you follower of Jesus, you who have turned and put your trust holy in the Son of God, you will be the new ark. I will put my spirit in you, and you will no longer have to strive simply trying to be someone whom you're not. I will make you into my children. I will pour my spirit into your heart, which will cause you to cry out, Abba, Father, and you will experience a new identity. You will know what it is to become a son or daughter of God. I will adopt you into the family of God. Let me ask you this. Have you, there goes five of the commandments. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? Let me just ask you that. Do you know what it, do you know what it feels like to be filled with the very Spirit of God. Have you ever felt exhausted trying to simply be good enough? Have you ever wondered to yourself, am I, am I, am I perhaps missing something? Because I know I'm supposed to act a certain way, but something inside me feels like I'd rather not. And you wonder if perhaps there's an identity problem. Because God wants to fix that. And if you'll make the decision, and it absolutely requires a decision on our part, if you'll make the decision to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I am that I am the unfaithful one. I have broken my promises. I've tried and I failed. Won't you rescue me? Won't you give me a new heart? That's called repentance. That's saying, I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, help. And we come to him and we receive what he has done for us on the cross. And then God pours his spirit into our hearts. That last little detail, it's a game changer. It is an absolute game changer. Can I invite the worship team to come up, please? I was hanging out with a, uh, a friend of mine. He's actually going to be with us. He'll be preaching uh, for us here next month. Uh, Dr. Greg Mitchell, he leads one of our sister churches up in Vancouver, BC. Um, but we were together, we were having dinner, Shirley and I, with him uh, a couple nights ago out on the East Coast for a conference. And um, 
his family, they've adopted several, uh, well, what started out as foster children, they've adopted these children in their family. They've been together for, for several years now, and now the kids, the foster kids, bring into their teen years. Now, if you, if you are a foster uh, son or daughter in here, please just bear with me, because I'm not, so I'm not speaking from personal experience, and I don't want to offend you, but this is what Dr. Greg um, explained. He said they're having really difficult times now as a family because they're teenage foster children. They're, they're starting to rebel quite radically, and it's, it's very, very difficult to sort of draw them back in, to build trust with them, because there's not that bond that like you just typically naturally happens in a biological family. Um, and he was saying, you know, as a, as a counselor, Greg was saying how we, we often just take that for granted, that like the most powerful tool I have as a father in terms of trying to like lead my children is that bond. Like my boy is my boy and my girl is my girl. And, and these, these kids, they're just mine. And no matter what happens, that bond is so powerful. Of course, it can be broken. It can also be abused. But that's like the kind of bond that we're meant to experience as children of God. A real powerful bond. So the God we're aspiring to know and to follow and obey and glorify with our lives isn't just an idea we're trying to adhere to. He's like a heavenly father that we know. That we know. We hear his voice. Just as God promised by his spirit over the ark, he would speak and he spoke. We're meant to hear him. His heart is meant to resound in ours. We are to receive his spirit, the spirit of adoption. And I want to give you an opportunity to experience that this morning. This is not some like weird charismatic thing. Guys, this is like Bible 101. That the children of God are led by the spirit of God. If you would like that this morning, as we're worshiping, I would like you to lift, I would lift my hands right now, but I'm sweating like a dog, okay? You just don't need to see it. While we're worshiping, I'd like you to lift your hands high. And if you're standing around next to someone who's lifting their hands in worship as a sign of, yes, Father, I would love to be filled with your spirit. I would love more of you. There, there is no end to the depth of the heart of God. You say, I've already been filled with the Spirit, but I feel so far from God. I feel so bound up in sin. I want the desire to act like a child who lives to honor his good Father. Then lift your hands up. If there's someone around you with their hands up, I want you to very respectfully, gently put your hand on their shoulder or on their back and pray for them. Lord Jesus, fill them. Heavenly Father, pour your spirit into their hearts. Cause them to know you like they've never known you before. Can we stand together, please?